Hey everyone, this is Clay, producer of Outrage and Optimism. Before we begin the show, I have an announcement to make. Tom and Christiana's book tour was canceled a bit early as they were intending on traveling the world to do a book event that you could attend in your city. But, you know, since we're all locked in our homes, we decided, you know, instead of just coming to your city for a book tour, we're going to come right to your home. We have a live stream event coming up on our Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube pages this Monday, April 6th at 4 p.m. GMT. So that's 5 p.m. London, noon Eastern time, and 9 a.m. on the West Coast, U.S. You'll be able to join in, interact with Paul, Tom, and Christiana as they discuss the future we choose, some timely issues regarding the global health pandemic, and how we can emerge stronger and better equipped to tackle the climate crisis. You can find the live stream on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube pages by searching at Global Optimism. We're posting about it all this weekend. You'll see it. Okay, that's Monday, April 6th, 4 p.m., GMT. We'll see you then. Okay, here's the show. Hello, and welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm not Tom Rivet Karnak. I'm Paul Dickinson. And I'm Cristiana Figueres. And this week, we continue with these podcasts whose overarching theme is how do we emerge from this health crisis in a better way? And in addition, we have an interview with Fatih Birol, who is the head of the International Energy Agency, and he shares his thoughts about the future. So it should be an exciting episode. going to say it's nice it's just us i mean it's not nice that we're not with tom well, but it's excuse nice it's just me, excuse me it's nice to have a, a time they're huge shoes to fill don't get me wrong tom connex huge shoes to fill but i'm just saying i think we can make a good old go of it now i've got a question for you christiana to start us off and it picks up a little bit on some of the comments from our, our, our monastic uh, friends on the previous podcast about tuning in to where we are at the moment and what's really happening in our lives I think that the days that I've been living for the last 55 years or whatever have been kind of accidental. They've been kind of happening to me. There's just this, you know, the complexity of life, it rolls on. And what I'm experiencing now, what I think millions of us are, maybe billions of us are, is that the, our days are, are very, very deliberate and we are extraordinarily aware of our days. They are constructed in a completely different way. And we can look at our lives and, and how we live through a kind of microscope. And of course, you know, there are a thousand reflections we could have on that, you know, philosophical and, and personal. But how might it change the way we think about how we live and maybe our relationship with our, the commercial world? Well, I'm delighted that you're much more intentional about your day, Paul. <laughs> that is not the experience that Nothing's I'm having. Nothing's changed for you. You and Marina no, are actually no. in Costa Rica running around doing meetings every 20 seconds. Right? Well, that's that's the problem. I mean, we find ourselves, you know, we were already working at 150%. Uh, and now we find ourselves just like, like Tom also um, expressed the other day, just running from one Zoom call to the other. And a friend of mine said on Monday, I'm about to throw Zoom into the ocean. Uh, and, uh, and, and you know, that's, <laughs> that is true, despite the fact that Zoom as a company now is much higher valued uh, on the stock market than uh, most airlines. But, um, 
but 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 let me let me see if I can answer your question in a different way. And I wonder about the stickiness of some of our changes, behavioral changes that we're having. Some of them actually are could be quite helpful in terms of quality of personal life. Some of them may not be very helpful, uh, and some of them may be helpful in terms of. Uh, emissions. So I thought we could go through some of these, uh, Paul, and see uh, which of them would contribute to better quality life. You have been doing the most phenomenal amount of international travel over the last uh, eight years or more. You know, you, you, you know, your role at the United Nations put you on an airplane practically all the time. And since then, you know, you've been responding to people wanting you to, to speak in, in, in many different parts of the world. Um, your life actually in terms of transport will have changed radically. And yet you're saying your work life hasn't changed. Would you like your work life in the future to be more like the last three weeks? Well, yes and no. Um, because the fact is that I didn't choose this and I also didn't prepare for it properly. If I could choose this, I would choose certainly less travel, particularly less air travel, but I would also prepare for it properly, meaning that I would have the setup at home that allows me to have the quality of interactions over uh, over the lines um, that I would like to have. So having to improvise every time, you know, come in here, pull the little table over to the window, make sure that the lighting is okay, figure this out, you know, do the do the um, trying out whether we have enough internet at that moment because we're uh, in a remote part of Costa Rica. All of that is not good. Um, because if, yeah, you yeah. know, I mean, there's, there's a lot that we are just improvising and, and it's a good thing that we're all improvising, but I don't know how many, you know, kitchens and how many bedrooms I have seen on zoom over the past uh, week. That's not the way we want to work. People are really doing the best that we all can, but, but we didn't prepare for this. So yes, less travel is good. Yes, and I'm sure you're going to go into your video conferencing cascade. Please, you know, <laughs> and, and indulge us with that. But if we have much better video conferencing possibilities, especially for large groups, that would be incredibly helpful. But we have to do this in a planned, premeditated, well-equipped way. Yeah, no, I'm okay. So that's my cue. <laughs> Uh-oh, here we go. You know, Get ready, everybody. We're now no, going to go into a video conference treatise, chapter three. Get yourself comfortable. Get get, get a cushion, maybe a, a cat to <laughs> a stroke. A glass of wine. Um, uh, <laughs> chocolate, if you prefer. Um no, over the 24 years that I've been going See, I told you we're going to go 24 years of history. <laughs> Carry on. Or is it 48 years? Anyway, it's a very long time. No, one of the reflections I've had to your point about the setup is actually with the early days of air travel. Um, I mean, there were lots of reasons why it wasn't until about 1960, 1970 that the kind of jet set started. Um, obviously, jet airplanes went a lot faster than propeller planes and the costs really fell. But also one of the things that I can remember from childhood is that air travel was pretty dangerous um, right the way through the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. You know, lots of famous people, Buddy Holly, the famous pop star, uh, died in an air crash. Lots of people died in air crashes. That doesn't happen anymore. And it doesn't happen anymore, you know, because 
our technology got better and better and better because we applied lots of resources to it. But frankly, when you're somewhere in Costa Rica with not very good bandwidth because you hadn't planned to be to be having a, a, a meeting at that time, that's because we've not built that infrastructure up yet. So I'm, you know, number one, just going to make a big, big, bold claim that we want to, you know, lay fiber optic cable around the world. Uh, and, and you know, if, if you had any idea how much money we spent on our cars and on air travel, if we allocated like even just 10, 20% of that money to establishing, you know, really good um, broadband everywhere and having fantastic video machines, we would we would never have the problems you've suffered again. Okay, I've managed to finish my speech without even going into the first hour. Yeah, that that's pretty amazing. Um, but you know, it is it is a pretty important ask, uh, Paul, particularly realizing that uh, not even. 60% of the global population have internet right now, even internet, right? Forget about broadband, forget about, you know, all the top, just basic, basic internet. We are not even at uh, 60% of the global population. So um, I, I agree with you. And, uh, and I do think that we have to consider now that high quality internet is actually part of our economic development, right? Because it allows for so much more than just communicating. We're doing telebanking, we're doing telemedicine, we're doing you know, so much over the internet. And it's just really part of economic development. So we have to understand that that is a new factor in development and in raising people um, out of out of poverty situations. Um, that it's not, honestly, we can't consider it a luxury anymore more because the the kind of information that is available to us and what we can do is really basic basic that everybody should have access to so i'm with you on that and 40% of the global population doesn't have any internet whatsoever okay so another thing getting us off telecoms and the internet i mean the three things that i'm really thinking about at the moment at home just very naturally are you know, is, is my internet working? Is my electricity working? Is my water, my sewage working? All that kind of thing. Am I getting food? You know, is, am I able to go to the shop and get food? And, you know, the restaurants are closed. And then I'm actually thinking about healthcare. Is there is there a health system that's going to be able to support me? So I can see myself, maybe like a lot of other people coming out of this whole experience with more of a focus on those basics, those necessities, you know, the connectivity, the electricity, the the food and, and the health system. And maybe I'm going to be thinking a little bit less about faraway luxuries. Well, to go to the food first, um, I, I have been wondering whether this is going to lead us to um, n- not dramatically shift over from where we are, but certainly move much more into localization of food production. You know, I, I know how many people do I know that are already gardening on their little balcony? Uh, they have their herbs there. They're beginning to, you know, put in their vegetables. And and as soon as we can get beyond our balcony into our gardens and into common gardens, um, I, I do think that there might be a very interesting and, and, and healthy, uh, not just because of what we eat, but also from an economic point of view, uh, switch over to more localization of food production, which would be uh, a very good thing in terms of stickiness of behavioral changes that will be good um, henceforth. And with respect to health, I wonder if that's not too 
two components there. One is um, the health system that um, that is provided by the government. It is really tragic to see that the health system in the United States is now so completely mm. over overpowered yeah. by this because they haven't invested in in good national health system, whereas other mm. countries that have invested in good national health um, um, systems are doing much better and being able to flatten the curve so much, so much more. It's not as if it's not as if Barack Obama didn't spend his first uh, term trying to fix that. Indeed. I think what you said about food is really interesting. This notion of localization is, is you know, we've, we've had globalization for four decades. We're starting to recognize localization. I've heard people talk about it very much in terms of renewable energy and local energy systems, which are more robust and not dependent upon the national grid or whatever. But it also does apply to food. And we can see maybe a little bit of a renaissance of people living in a local way living in their communities more. David Perry, we had him on the podcast. He talked about this. He said that we are very close to knowing where our food came from, who was the family that grew it, you know, how long it's been on the shelf. If it goes to the shelf, if maybe it, goes it comes, shelf. you know, farm to fork immediately. Yeah, right. And uh, as I've been kind of cleaning everything that comes through our door, all the produce, everything, as I'm washing the apple and I'm cutting my onions... I am asking those questions. Where did this come from? Who touched it before I did? I hope that that we keep doing that as as we emerge from this. It's like mm. I hope that we continue to ask those questions and to investigate where our food is coming from because to be honest, I know a lot of us are very disconnected from where our food comes from. You know, somebody told me that the the actual the secret to to delivering fair trade in the world would simply be to have the address where the food came from or where the product came from. That is the key that unlocks the whole door because currently we go in and say, oh, you know, this isn't, this This is only a couple of dollars. This is great. You know, actually, what is it? Where'd it come from? Who made it? What's the story? That's what we need to know. Yeah. A little code on every piece of produce would give you all of that information, right? Uh, if it was if it was backed by the data and if the data was provided, and a lot of people will tell you that this, this can't be done, but I actually have spent a couple of decades trying to gather data from corporations and if they put their minds to it they're much better than you might think okay now there was a series on the tv a years ago called monty python where they would often say and now for something completely different <laughs> okay so i would like to uh introduce uh our interview with uh fatty birol the head of the International Energy Agency. Christiana, can you say just a little bit about the role of the IEA so people can understand the interview better? Yeah. Um, Fatih Birol is a Turkish economist. Uh, he has been, he's been, he's worked at the IEA for, I, I can't even remember how long, a long time. Uh, and I knew him before he was made head of the, um, of the agency, but he has been head of the, uh, of the agency since 2015, the same year as the Paris Agreement. Um, and the agency is, is basically the authority on energy issues, both current and future. And they are well known for many things, but uh, perhaps more than anything for a yearly publication that is put out by the IEA called the World Energy Outlook, which is a 
mammoth Bible uh, that contains everything you ever wanted to know about energy in that year. But we have to understand that the world energy outlook is actually what it does is it sets out a set of scenarios of energy generation and use under different conditions. Now, very excitingly, I must say, several weeks ago, Fatih Birol was the first person that I was aware of, and I say this in the um, in the interview, who actually came out to say that governments need to keep the energy transition and climate change central in their minds when they put together their um, economic stimulus packages. And it is very evident that what the new WEO is going to do for this year, the new World Energy Outlook, is it is actually going to be giving advice and suggestions to governments as to how they should be treating the entire energy sector that is both transport and electricity production um, and, and industry, of course, um, how they should be thinking about that in their stimulus packages. So I must say, I really celebrate this because from what I can say, it is the first time that they're moving into a very active role, seeing the crisis that we have right now on health as being also potentially a huge, huge, even greater crisis on climate change or one of the accelerators of the solutions to climate change. So I am totally grateful to Fatih for his leadership, for those in his team, very hardworking, very, very knowledgeable people who I think are taking a very refreshing approach um, and really helping governments to figure out what their, um, what their stimulus packages should be. And that is what he talks about in this interview. So um, very exciting to hear that from, from Fatih Birol. Let's hear the interview. Dr. Fatih Birol, thank you very much for taking uh, some Zoom time in a very, very crazy Zoom day. Uh, every day is just filled with Zoom meetings. Um, thank you very much for taking some time today to come on our podcast, Outrage and Optimism. We are all homebound uh, because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And um, as we all know, this is causing a huge financial crisis that many authorities are already beginning to call uh, a recession. I was quite uh, taken, Fatih, that you were, as far as I could see, you were the first person that came out with a warning call, a clarion call to governments that as they begin to consider, of course, they're all right now into emergency measures and emergency funds for health purposes. But once that is over and once they begin to emerge of that, they will also have to figure out stimulus packages that go beyond the health purposes, actually into the economic recovery purposes. And you were the first one who came out with a clarion call to say governments need to understand that those stimulus packages cannot throw us back into a high carbon uh, intensive economy, but rather should accelerate us into a lower carbon economy. So I just wanted to, um, first of all, just give you um, the opportunity to share with our listeners 
um, the, your, your call that came so early? Why were you so emphatic about it? And, um, and just a little bit of a context of what do you mean by, by that warning? First of all, thank you very much, uh, uh, dear Christiana, for uh, inviting me. Uh, and uh, thank you very much for all the work you have done in the past and uh, you are uh, doing now. We may have, uh, all of us have uh, differences in views here and there, but I am sure, I hope we are all working for a better future for all of us. So thank you very much for uh, hosting me. And um, you are right, we, uh, I was uh, one of the first, if not the first, vocal voice here. Uh, why? Uh, very simple. When we look at the station now, I see the governments have three consecutive uh, challenges or tasks, if I may say so. The first one is the, uh, the uh, fighting against this uh, epidemic, the health uh, challenge. Second is the two governments need to create a firewalls around our economies. People, people are losing uh, jobs, uh, uh, small businesses are losing their clients, many banks uh, are uh, going to be uh, destabilized. So uh, the first aid to uh, economy. But after that, since we are seeing a major uh, economic uh, meltdown, governments are uh, preparing stimulus packages. This is at the trillion dollar level in many of the uh, uh, countries around the world. And uh, this may be, those stimulus packages may well be once in a generation in scale. And how those uh, stimulus packages are designed will give a shape to the future of our economy worldwide in the many years to come. Let's uh, remember the 2008-2009 financial uh, crisis. And uh, as you know, Christian, I am a more of a man of numbers. When I look at the numbers, we have seen after that a big rebound of the economy and rebound of the CO2 emissions after the 2008-2009 uh, financial crisis. Now, uh, I am uh, thinking it is very important learning from uh, the uh, lessons uh, how we can uh, design the stimulus packages uh, which can help to boost the uh, economic recovery, boost the resilience of our energy systems, and help us to tackle the climate challenge we have in front of us through uh, accelerating the clean energy transitions. I think uh, it is very important to understand that the, many of the suggestions we make in terms of the how we can combine uh, these two things are uh, really not exclusive. Some of the measures uh, we are suggesting can uh, help to create jobs, can give a boost to economic recovery, and at the same time uh, prepare us uh, for a, a better future. So it is the reason uh, why we came up uh, with uh, 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 this uh, perspective. And uh, I can uh, tell you, uh, Christian, we are receiving uh, lots of lots of requests through different governments to uh, support them, to give them advice, how to uh, design their stimulus uh, packages in the best way. Again, I do not forget, and I think we should not forget the first challenge now is the 
medical challenge, health challenge. Right. The second is creating firewalls around the economy. And then third, uh, creating a resilience of our energy systems and uh, accelerating the clean energy transitions. Uh, I am well aware of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Those are three um, three important. And, and interestingly, those really are sequential, right? Those yes, exactly. really do have to be sequential. While, uh, although, while stage one is in execution, stage two needs to be prepared. And while stage two is there, stage three needs to be prepared so that we can dovetail from one stage smoothly to another. Um, uh, Fadi, would be really interested in, in knowing your sense of two things. A, is there a timeline for those three? Is there a global timeline or is that very country specific? Um, particularly given the fact that the health crisis has not really hit or certainly not peaked in many countries. And I would also be interested in understanding from you, how does the experience, is that experience applicable for those other countries that are uh, slightly behind the health crisis? Or is everything very, very specific to uh, to each country and each economy? I think, uh, first of all, uh, learning uh, from experiences is uh, extremely uh, important here. And if I start from the health uh, part, I am not sure that we, as, as the world citizens or the governments around the world, uh, uh, give a good test. We have not uh, learned from the experience of each other. We are, uh, in some parts of the world, we are making the similar mistakes that the others uh, did. And uh, now, uh, when I look at the world, uh, uh, after China, Europe, and uh, United States, and Canada are moving uh, all in the right direction, but my main worry is still uh, Middle East and Africa are uh, not at that stage. And uh, especially in Africa, the uh, financial resources of those countries, if you look at this, if you look at the, uh, the, uh, the uh, resilience of the health uh, system, uh, we, are, uh, we may see a major challenge coming from Africa uh, as well. So uh, we all know that this is a, a, a pandemic around the world. Uh, so therefore, it is important to uh, those countries like China, India, Europe, uh, North America are attacking the health issue. But unless we all together as a world defeat this problem, uh, none of us is safe uh, in a, a definite way. So therefore, it is very important from a medical sense, uh, first of all, to learn with each other and show solidarity. As I said before, I think we have a medical challenge for sure. We have a, a, an economic challenge uh, for sure, but we have, in my view, an uh, ethical test. This is an ethical test for all the governments uh, around the world. The world will not forget which governments took which positions in this uh, situation, which leaders, mm. government leaders, business leaders, the, uh, the uh, thought leaders, what kind of positions they have uh, taken in order to push this attack on the humanity back 
And uh, therefore, uh, we all have a test to pass, which is, I would uh, say, the ethical test and International Energy Agency. It is the reason we have started from the beginning very vocal and working all the uh, governments uh, around the world uh, to support and advise them as much as uh, we can. Wow. Wow. An ethical test, Fatih. I, I, am, uh, I, I totally agree with you. And I'm so glad that you are vocalizing that because... Uh, we, we have somehow come to believe that um, economic or energy decisions are on one side and ethics are on the other. And, you know, to bring them together, um, particularly because of the health crisis, is so, so refreshing. I'm quite, uh, quite delighted to hear you say that. And at the same time, Fatih, do you think, are, are we in danger here of almost dividing the world? where some countries, those that have gone forward, uh, who have the financing available to deal with the health crisis and whose recovery packages can, in theory, really keep the future of the economy in mind. And then we could have another world where, um, in particular in Asia, we know that that is the area from which we will have most emissions under a business-as-usual scenario in the near future. And uh, would we be backing ourselves into a most unfortunate scenario that it is precisely in those countries in which we will see most future emissions, that those be the countries that are least able to deal with both the health crisis as well as with a well-planned and thought-out recovery package? So, uh, first of all, uh, going one step back, 2019, global emissions flatlined. This was a... Uh, Correct. Uh, uh, this is the you and uh, me. We were both in uh, Davos, uh, Christiana, and we discussed these issues. And in the in Davos, everybody was thinking of global emissions will increase again in 2019. But IEA came out said that it is flatlined. It was a not a bad uh, news, not the most uh, best news in the world, but still flatlined compared to increase was uh, a, a, a good one. And then yeah. this year. I expect, uh, we expect as a year, emissions will uh, decline, Go down. drop. Yes. But in my view, it is happening, uh, it's not to, something to celebrate because it is happening exactly. for the wrong reasons because it is exactly. happening, people are dying, economy is uh, melting down. Why we want emissions to go down to have a better future for the citizens to be happy to have a, a more livable uh, planet. So... How the uh, stimulus packages will be designed is up to governments. If they want to have a future which is cleaner from an energy perspective, which is more resilient, more secure from an energy uh, perspective, it is up to them how they are going to design their policies. I can tell you that, uh, for example, China is uh, one of the leaders of uh, the clean energy transitions uh, in the world in terms of electric cars, in terms of others. And this is mainly driven by the air pollution concerns in, in China. And uh, another uh, country, I uh, can tell you, when we look at the 2019, uh, the largest reductions in the CO2 emissions, in fact, came from the United States. Yes. And, uh, we, Not because of climate change concerns. Yeah, <laughs> all, of us, all of us have a stake to see a world which is uh, uh, much uh, better in the future. 
and uh, to put emphasis on the energy policies in terms of uh, energy efficiency, in terms of uh, hydrogen, in terms of uh, batteries. This will all uh, help us, uh, and innovation, I should say, to prepare a better future. It is in Asia or Europe or North America or Africa and elsewhere. Why I have highlighted Africa especially because uh, of the, uh, the population and uh, limited financial resources and very weak health system. It is the reason why I wanted right. to highlight uh, Africa. I hope uh, there will not be an outbreak in terms of the uh, coronavirus in Africa, but this is an uh, area that I think we all need to keep an eye uh, on. That's a real possibility. Uh, Dr. Birol, thank you very much indeed for your leadership. Uh, certainly in the two decades I've worked on climate change, the stance of the IEA uh, has been very significant in changing the debate and, and your leadership uh, it has been very uh, impressive. Um, can I ask you about these stimulus packages? Yes. You know, we're now in a new economy, a new reality. Do you think there should be, for example, tax concessions for teleworking? Should we be seeing broadband or video as a kind of strategic industry? that governments should be trying to stimulate? I think so. There will be a consumer behavior will change, uh, definitely, uh, by themselves. Uh, but second, that if there are some uh, incentives in order to accelerate and channel this uh, uh, change in consumer behavior, this would even be much more helpful. This will uh, provide uh, more productivity to the economy and reduce the uh, emissions. Uh, it's a very good question uh, because we are uh, preparing a, a report now, coming uh, very soon. You may uh, know very well our report, World Energy Outlook, and Christina knows uh, very well. She's an avid reader of the World Energy Outlook, <laughs> if I may say so, and uh, reads very carefully. Admittedly, not the whole thing, Fatih, admittedly. Yeah, <laughs> it, is, uh, I, it, is, it is what I was suspecting, that you were not reading the whole thing. <laughs> Uh, but, there we go. Good to be transparent. Yeah. So what I wanted to say is that after this coronavirus crisis and reading the uh, situation, uh, I have uh, changed the priorities in the IEA and we are making a special report on the World Energy Outlook in order to provide advice to uh, governments how we can uh, uh, prepare the stimulus packages in the best way to prepare us for a, a better future in terms of economic robustness, in terms of the securing the resilience of energy systems and reducing the emissions. And among the issues that we are working on, uh, one of them is definitely uh, the lessons on uh, behavioral change uh, for the consumers, uh, as Mr. Dickinson, as you have uh, uh, suggested. And uh, without hurting the product productivity, what kind of incentives we can give the consumers to uh, change their behaviours. Well, th thank you for that uh, very comprehensive answer. And if I can ask a different question now in the same, uh, about airlines. Right now, the world's airlines are, are seeking support from governments because of the, the, you know, the, the very difficult, uh, almost impossible financial situation they're in. 
Is it uh, possible for governments to use this leverage to push for taxing of air fuel at some, you know, some some level to to so it you know international aviation properly reflects the the the, uh, the environmental impact? So uh, around the world, uh, many of the airlines, uh, it is not only in the uh, uh, Europe or North America or Asia, in, it is in Africa, Middle East airlines are completely difficult situation. Not only the airlines, all the industries which are uh, 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 job providers, giving jobs to millions of people, and they are, uh, we are going to see, we are already seeing major layoffs, people are losing their jobs. Governments uh, in general for the industries uh, may give support in order to uh, give them a, a lifeline, but for any uh, of the industry, they may be linked to certain criteria. This criteria may well uh, range from the increasing the efficiency of their operations to provide, uh, to give them an incentive to innovate and to go to uh, better options for their operations, uh, ranging from uh, more productivity, productivity to reducing their uh, carbon uh, footprint. So uh, it may be linked to uh, those uh, criteria, but most important thing for me is, as of today, the how we can find jobs for millions of people around the world losing their jobs and help them and their families. Exactly. And um, Fati, so we, we've touched lightly on, on two aspects that I'm sure will be covered by the new WEO. One is, as, uh, as you pointed out, behavioral changes. Um, the other is the airline industry. But I'm sure you will be covering other sectors in the energy transition. Can you give us a 70-foot um, view of what other sectors do you see as being promising sectors for uh, for receiving stimulus funds that would actually accelerate the energy transition. So I can give you a couple of examples that we are going to uh, focus. One is the big one is the uh, energy efficiency. So uh, the uh, building stock, uh, especially in the uh, the uh, industrious countries, uh, are very old, and the renovation of the uh, buildings, housing, will create a lot of jobs, improving the efficiency and uh, reducing the energy bill and uh, emissions. And this is a major source of creating employment. According to our uh, analysis, $1 invested in the housing, uh, improving housing energy efficiency, about uh, 60% goes to creating jobs. And thinking that the construction industry will be in a very bad shape, this will provide a very good help. Second, renewable energies. So when we look at the renewable energies, let's take a wind. A building wind mills uh, have a lot of spillover effects for uh, the uh, economy. And the compared to 10 years ago, the cost of solar and wind is much cheaper uh, now. It can provide a, a strong uh, backing for the uh, economy. Third area, I would say uh, the innovation for new technologies. One issue, hydrogen, an area that we are working a lot. And in the hydrogen, I don't want to go too much technical, but 60% of the cost of hydrogen is because of the electrolysis, uh, electrolyzers, mm -hmm. uh, better said. And the it is not a rocket science. It is why it is it's still expensive 
because we have not uh, manufactured enough. Putting money, a mass manufacturing of the electrolyzers will bring the cost of electrolyzers down and make the hydrogen an important part of our uh, transition. The same applies, in my view, uh, carbon capture and storage, batteries, electric uh, uh, batteries for the electric cars and others. We have to also look at the legacy issue. It's not only what, what is going to be built new, but like one issue, uh, Christiana, uh, you may remember, since uh, 20 years, we have started in the IEA every year how much fossil fuel subsidies are spent by the uh, governments. And fossil fuel subsidies are consumption. Fossil fuel consumption subsidies are distorting the markets. And they are giving wrong signals to the uh, uh, consumers. Today, according to our numbers, there is 400 billion US dollar fossil fuel consumption subsidies. And the 40% of it alone is for oil products. And given the situation that the oil prices are very low now, it is a golden opportunity for the governments to phase out those fossil fuel consumption subsidies, which will, on one hand, take the burden from the shoulders of the governments, because governments need money, because governments are subsidizing this, government budget will be in a better shape. And uh, second, reduce the emissions and make the markets much more rational and much more efficient. So these are uh, some of the areas that we are going to uh, focus on in order to the issue that Mr. Dickinson mentioned, namely how we can accelerate the change in the consumer uh, behaviors. Okay. Well, I mean, thank you for that brilliant exposition. It's so clear that you have probably a better understanding uh, of the world energy system than anyone in the world. It's, it's a real honor to talk to you. I have a challenging question for you. And this is... Um, Many, many people across the world, governments and investors and corporations, will actually look to you for guidance about the future energy system. How much do you think you can accelerate the decarbonization of the global energy system faster by predicting it faster? To be honest with you, we are not uh, in the position of predicting. We are giving advice to governments. Up to them, they want to pick it up uh, or not. But... Uh, since uh, uh, three weeks, uh, we are uh, receiving overwhelming amount of requests from the governments around the world. Perhaps I should, uh, why I say so many times governments, for two reasons. One, it is now everybody looks at the governments, what they are going to do, and the governments are in the driving seat for the time being. Second, coming to our uh, sector, energy sector, in a normal environment, 70% of all energy investments, windmills, refineries, electric cars, are either directly made by governments, those investments, or as a response to government uh, policies, such as feed-in tariffs in renewables. So therefore, government's decision is very important. And International Energy Agency is uh, the, the global energy authority working with all the governments around the world. We have a huge responsibility. And we are, uh, to be honest with you, uh, Mr. Dickinson, since three weeks, uh, we are uh, 320 uh, experts, the, some of the uh, top experts of the world, energy experts, working only on this issue, uh, how we can help the governments, because we know time is of essence. As Christiana just uh, mentioned, we have, of course, the health issue is the primary issue, 
but we cannot let the others uh, go out of sight, namely how to manage the uh, good stimulus packages, how to make them happen. So we are uh, trying to ho talk with the governments and advise them. We are working very fast, <laughs> almost around the uh, clock. Um, I myself, I am working three times more than I was in the office, but with much less efficiency, I can tell you that, with much less efficiency because of these technical problems. Uh, and I don't have my colleagues around me. I cannot see their uh, beautiful and smiling faces. So uh, <laughs> this is, uh, but we are aware of the huge responsibility we have on our shoulders. And we have receiving calls and suggestions from many uh, corners, uh, including those we have not expected before. Thank you. Well, um, Fatih, I think it's, uh, it, it is quite uh, fortuitous, if I can say, um, that governments are ringing you. I hope you didn't give them your cell phone number because then you'll start to get, you know, <laughs> calls at two and three o'clock in the morning when they forget what time zone you're in. Thank you very, very much for taking uh, the time and walking us through. Thank you. Uh, what, what is actually a, a, a hard job now, but uh, walks toward a very promising future. Thank you very much. I thank you very much, uh, uh, Mrs. Figueres and uh, Mr. Dickinson. I want to say that uh, AIA is ready to support all the governments around the world, all the citizens as much as we can. And in my view, as an energy organization, I believe energy is good but emissions are bad. So we have to understand yes. it. Without Good energy, difference. we couldn't be uh, talking now without electricity, without energy. So thank you very much for the time you have given me. And I wish you all the best to you and your colleagues and your families. And since we are talking since half an hour, it is time to uh, wash our hands uh, to go back and to get ready for the next challenges we have ahead. Thank you very much. Indeed, Prudence. Thank you very much. Thank you very thank much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Well, that was an extraordinary interview. What a fascinating person in an extraordinary job um, with an incredible overview of, of the problem of climate change in a sense because it's almost inseparable from energy. Um, but I noticed he used that word ethics during the interview. And Christiana, what was your interpretation of, of why he was using that word? And what did he really mean? Well, you know, I was delighted um, that he moved into that space because usually you think of economists as being out there, you know, only in the numbers space. And you think of uh, people who are more sort of in the social science and the, um, let's say, the community strength or the spiritual or the, um, you know, the, that, that end of the spectrum as being the ones that are concerned about ethics. But here is one of the most capable and well-informed economists, energy economists of the world, speaking about ethics. How fantastic is that? How fantastic is that? And I, I was just really taken by that because we are holding the pen and writing the future of our planet right now. We are writing the future. And so what he's saying is, let us do that in an ethical way. Let us 
make a choice about what kind of a world do we want to create for ourselves, our children, and all of their dependents, and then align our choices, our decisions, our financial um, decisions, and certainly our economic recovery packages, align them to that world. That is the ethically responsible thing to do. And I think you've you've hit upon something there that is so fascinating, Christiana. You talked about that you know the the standard the the the, the uh, formal economists, shall we say, in their perspective on the world. And then you also said, but this is a kind of social science problem. And I think that that's incredibly interesting because certainly some of the reading that I was doing in when I first got involved in climate change, uh, economists economists were saying, well, we're going to be so much richer in the future, we can deal with climate change then. And there was actually, there was a fundamental mis- misunderstanding of the nature of economic development that we actually don't get better at really big machines. You can't make machines to lower sea level or change the acidity of the ocean. And uh, that, that, that when, when economists grasp that, they, they become more like social scientists. But um, I wanted to pick up on this point about the, the future because it's, it's a World Energy Outlook, W-E-O, World Energy Outlook. And that outlook actually affects the future. If that world energy outlook says, you know, there's going to be um, X money going into oil and gas recovery, then it kind of will. So can you tell me, Christiana, you know, to what degree can the International Energy Agency or other predictors of the future help us make better investment decisions through the power of prediction? Well, um, I'm not sure that I see it that way, Paul. I'm actually wondering if um, the sheer economic hit on uh, oil and gas industry is actually what is going to um, have the most impact on the future of that industry. The convergence right now of a dramatic drop in demand for, especially for oil, um, because transport has come to a screeching halt. There's been a dramatic drop in demand. Um, But that has come at the same time as a drop in the price of oil. So, you know, even with or without ethics, right, with or without, um, it's very possible that some of the existing production um, simply will also come to a screeching halt because um, it is now not covering its own costs. And how the oil and gas industry is going to recover from something like that, um, it is it is very unusual for them to be hit with two crises like this at the same time. And then we also have to, as you say, look at investments, right? Where are they going to get um, the kahul? Mm. Which, which financial institutions are going to give them capital now and at what cost of capital to make any new investments when both demand for as well as the price of production have actually tanked? It's very difficult for them to do that now. So that 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 explains a lot, you know, about how, how the oil and gas companies are... Um performing in response to this challenge. But what about the oil producing countries, Christiana? How is this, you know, 
going to affect them. Yeah, we've been talking about oil and gas companies as though they were all, um, you know, privately owned. Um, and, and oil and gas companies actually belong into two big buckets, the nationally owned oil and gas companies and the privately owned or the independents. Um, and everything that we have set up until now actually refers much more to the independent um, and, and privately owned and, and traded, publicly traded um, oil and gas companies. But as we know, we have nationally owned oil and gas companies that are owned by their governments. Uh, And the governments and the country's economy depends very heavily in most, if not all of those instances, on the income that they get from the export of oil and gas. So while oil importing, oil and gas importing countries might, at least during this time of low prices, uh, find that they are benefiting from that, right? Because they need to use less of their very expensive foreign currency to import their fuel, um, at least for, for the time being. The oil exporting countries, especially the ones that have national oil and, ga- oil and gas companies, are really being hit very, very deeply here. And um, and from a from a national economy point of view, it's going to be very difficult for them to quickly substitute that income for other alternative income. So, in terms of you know ethical uh, considerations here. We have to understand that what that actually means, and most of these are developing countries, those countries are going to have a very, very difficult time to buy essential goods and services from the rest of the world if they are not being able to export their main product at the prices that they had counted on. So, you know, very difficult situation again for developing countries. Well, that, uh, I think, brings us on to a point that's come up previously, which is just us um, hopefully developing more empathy out of the situation so we can better care uh, as an international family of nations for those who are suffering at any particular time. Thank you very much uh, for listening to this, the second week in our series, looking at how we can emerge from the global pandemic better equipped to deal with the climate crisis and accelerate the great transition that in some ways has started, not as we expected. Um, And great to be with you this week. Uh, Christiana and Tom and I will look forward to being with you next week. But I think for now, it's just time to say goodbye, keep well, keep safe and speak soon. And we look forward to having Tom again with us next week. Huge shoes to fill. Till next week. Bye-bye. Bye. So there you have it. Another episode of Outrage and Optimism. Before I thank everyone, we have an announcement. Tom and Christiana's book tour was canceled a bit early, which is very sad. But we decided instead of just coming to your city for the book tour, we're coming right to your home. We have a live stream event coming up on our Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube pages on Monday, April 6th at 4 p.m. T. You'll be able to join in and interact with Paul, Tom, and Christiana as they discuss the future we choose. And they usually riff on some other stuff too, and it'll be really fun. Marina and I will be there. It's going to be great. You can find the live stream on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube by searching at Global Optimism. Again, Monday, April 6th, 1 p.m. GMT. Okay, Outrage and Optimism is a production of Global Optimism and is produced by Clay Carnell, an executive produced by the one and only Marina Mancilla-Harman. 
There's a team that makes this whole thing happen, thanks to Callum Grieve, Pete Kluttenbrock, Sarah Thomas, Chloe Revel, Daniel Fink, Sylvie Snow Thomas, and the team at L Communications. Zoe Trelak-Antich, Lara Richardson, James Douglas, Caitlin Allen, Sharon Johnson, Nigel Topping, and Michael Northrup. And a special thanks this week to Robert Stone and Jad Mawawad and Dr. Fatih Biro. They made this week's interview happen. It was great working with them. Okay, here's my weekly public service announcement. There are solutions to slowing the spread of this virus. And believe it or not, we still have people on Earth who are unaware of what they need to be doing right now to flatten the curve of infections. A short text or a quick call will absolutely save lives. Please educate yourself and those you know. We need to complain on the internet less and seek to educate more. There's a link to the World Health Organization's webpage on how to protect yourself and loved ones from COVID-19 in the show notes of this episode. Thank you. Next week, we'll be diving into another area on how to emerge from the crisis stronger and better equipped to tackle climate change. Thanks for listening. We'll see you then.